0: This is the first episode out of three about the impact of type 2 inflammation in patients who suffer from severe asthma, chronic rhinosinusitis, or atopic dermatitis. Today, we'll discuss severe asthma and chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps, and therefore, we have Professor Brian Lipworth from the University of Dundee in the UK to join us. Friday, the 12th of November, he gave a lecture about severe asthma and chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps which you can listen to now. I'm going to talk about the inflammatory
1: cascade, the relevance of type 2 or T2 biomarkers in relation to asthma control, how we work up our severe asthma patients, looking at uh, T2 comorbidities and their relation to asthma, um, uh, an algorithm for endotype-driven biologic prescribing looking at the burden of oral steroids and using biologics for steroid sparing and then hopefully to wrap up.
0: The inflammatory cascade in asthma. What can you tell us about that?
1: And Basically, you have the genetic loading, you have the trigger factor, which might be an allergen, a chemical, a virus, exercise, whatever, and that leads to type 2 inflammation. And The key effector cell in most cases, of course, is the uh, eosinophil. Um, you get the type 2 cytokines in particular, um, IL-4, um, IL-5, and IL-13, and uh, chemical mediators release preformed from mast cells and basophils um, like histamines and cysteinyl leukotriene. At the bottom of the cascade is the twitchy airway smooth muscle, um, which contributes to the um, airway hyperreactivity. So the cornerstone of treatment, of course, is to, Damp down the type 2 inflammation with corticosteroids, which are very broad spectrum. I'm talking about inhaled corticosteroids. And then you can add in a second-line controller, which can either be an anti-inflammatory like theophylline or chromones, not used so much these days, admittedly, or a uh, second-line smooth muscle airway stabilizer at the bottom of the cascade, like a long-acting beta-agonist or a long-acting muscarinic antagonist. And then for the more severe patients, frequency relapsing, uh, requiring oral steroids, um, then we use the monoclonals now instead of using maintenance oral steroids. Maintenance oral steroids are no longer um, permissible uh, in the, in the, in 2021, in my humble opinion. And that would be adding in something which either blocks IgE, um, anti uh, anti interleukin five or five receptor alpha, or anti interleukin four receptor alpha. Coming down, um, we will soon have. Um, anti-T-slip, uh, thymic stromal lymphoprotein, one of the alarmants.
0: What are the three main biomarkers when looking at type 2 asthma?
1: The three main biomarkers that we use in clinical practice every day are, of course, um, FENO, fractional exhaled nitric oxide, which is readily available, um, immunoglobulin E, and of course, bloody eosinophils. Ideally, you would men- measure tissue eosinophils um, in induced sputum or biopsy, but of course, in a, in a real-life clinic situation, um, that's not going to happen. So we have to use blood eosinophils as a, a surrogate. Now, the point I want to make here is that um, blood eosinophils are mostly driven by uh, by IL five. Um, eosinophils can't release IL five in the way that I can't. Uh, I can't uh, resist donuts either. It's a very similar principle, to be honest. Whereas um, FENO is driven by um, interleukin-13. Uh, IgE um, is driven also by um, IL-4 and also by um, IL-13. And we know that because if you block IL-13 with an IL-13 antagonist, um, something like um, lebrechizumab or tralokinumab, then um uh, you get a reduction in IgE and FENO. And you see the same thing if you block IL-4 receptor alpha with dupilumab as well. Whereas if you block um, IL-5 with mepolizumab or bemrolizumab, you reduce circulating and tissue eosinophils, but it does nothing at all to FENO um, or, uh, or IgE. And then further upstream, as I said, we will soon have anti-T-slip uh, drugs um, like uh, tezepelumab which are currently undergoing um, approval. So this, in essence, encapsulates what I'm trying to say. It's a slide that I use called the T2 cytokine bucket analogy. So there you've got a bucket. Upstream, uh, you've got the epithelial alarmins. So these are, if you like, innate epithelial cytokines released in the epithelium, and these comprise of IL-25, t slick which I've already mentioned, and an IL-33. So the first um, blocker of epithelial alarmins will be tesopelumab, which blocks T-slip. Um, and then uh, further downstream from the bucket, think of sort of a very simple analogy, albeit think of the three holes for the downstream uh, type 2 um, signature cytokines, um, which are IL-4, IL-5, and IL-13. And these in turn drive the uh, clinical phenotype comprising of eosinophilia, airway hyperresponsiveness, um, airflow obstruction with reduced FFV1, exacerbations and symptoms. So that's a nice, simple way. And actually, I use this bucket analogy to explain what's going on to patients as well. It's something that they can visualize quite easily.
0: Okay. But what happens when you block IL-4 and IL-13 in relation to blood eosinophils?
1: So um, what happens is, is that you get migration of um, eosinophils um, from the blood um, into into the tissue. And then uh, the eosinophils in the tissue, in the lung tissue or in the nose, if you've got nasal polyps, um, results in the uh, clinical uh, manifestations of uh, severe asthma or chronic sinusitis with uh, with nasal polyposis. So what happens is, is that this eosinophil migration is mediated by IL-4 and um, IL-13. Um, that's going from the blood into the tissue. So if you block um, 4 and 13 together, as shown by the red crosses here, then you will reduce tissue eosinophils, but you'll get a transient log jam, if you like, backwards, giving you a transient increase in blood eosinophils, as you reduce the trafficking from the blood into the tissue. So if you're using um, a drug which blocks IL-413 expression like uh, um, while reducing tissue eosinophils, you can get a transient rise in bloody eosinophils and that's, that's something to be aware of. Eventually what happens is you reach a steady state and the eosinophils usually settle back down to where you were to start with. So if you block IL-413, you reduce tissue eosinophils As I've already said, you reduce FENO, IgE, you'll improve FFV1 because IL-13 has an effect on airway smooth muscle. Um, It's very important in mucin production and regulating airway smooth muscle. And you reduce exacerbations and you reduce
0: symptoms. What kind of assessments do you as a clinician use when diagnosing an asthma patient?
1: It is important, I think, to document an objective marker of control. We use the ACQ because, um, it, in the Gold study, it was shown to be the strongest predictor of future exacerbation. If your ACQ is more than 1.5, you've got a very high risk of having an exacerbation in the ensuing six to 12 months. Uh, measuring spirometry, domiciliary peak flow to document dinal variability, nocturnal dips. Every patient should have exhaled breath nitric oxide. If you're not doing that, you can't really get a good assessment of type two inflammation. Bloody eosinophils. most patients will have had a blood count in the past 12 months. If they haven't, do one. Some form of allergy testing, whether it be specific um, immunoassay or whether it be skin prick testing. Skin prick testing is preferable because the patient gets an instant feedback on their own body, um, but um, it, it is more time-consuming. Um, a sputum culture as well, um, just to see uh, what they're growing in case they might have bronchiectasis and growing haemophilus or moraxella and a chest X-ray. And that's your core workup. And then ancillary workup might include high-resolution CT scan. In my clinic, of course, they all get a nasal endoscopy and a lot of them also get CT sinus. All of my patients get impulse oscillometry as well as spirometry because it only adds uh, a couple of minutes. Um and then uh, you might want to measure uh, single breath diffusion, do bronchial challenge testing, sputum eosinophils, and all these other bits and bobs as well. The one thing that we do routinely um, is that we measure the beta-2 receptor genotype because that's a common cause for treatment failure. And 15% of patients with severe asthma have the homozygous arginine beta-2 receptor feet genotype, which means that they fare poorly with regular ICS lab but that will be the subject of another talk.
0: How do you see type 2 asthma and comorbidities?
1: Type 2 inflammation is at the center of asthma and its related comorbidities. So here you have the biomarkers, IgE, FENO, peripheral eosinophils, and the drugs which block them. So anti-IgE will obviously block IgE, has a very small, modest effect in reducing pheno. Doesn't do anything to eosinophils. Um, Anti-IL five will reduce eosinophils only. And anti-IL four receptor alpha, which blocks IL four thirteen expression, I do pimolab, will reduce pheno and IgE, and will reduce tissue but not bloody eosinophils. Um, and as a consequence of that, um, these are the uh, type two comorbidities. So you've got asthma. Um, chronic rhinosinusitis and nasal polyposis, which commonly coexists with, with asthma. Um, don't forget about eosinophilic esophagitis as well, allergic rhinitis and atopic dermatitis. And the clinical phenotypic manifestations of asthma are um, effects on airway smooth muscle, which in turn drives airway hyperresponsiveness, And of course, airway smooth muscles responsible for impaired airway calibre as FV1 mucin mucin production also very important and of course um, exacerbations and symptoms and the one thing which blocking IL-413 does is that it will attenuate airway smooth muscle and also mucin production so it's quite a broad spectrum biologic in that regard where I think of anti-IL-5 and anti-IG as a much more narrow spectrum biologic so if you think of that in antibiotic terms then perhaps dupimilam might be the sort of the amoxicillin of asthma, whereas um, omelizumab and um, uh, mepolizumab would be more like the sort of the flucloxicillin or the penicillin of, uh, of asthma. That's a crude analogy, but it kind of works. So what impact do uh, these comorbidities have on endotype and phenotype in patients with um moderate to severe asthma? Well, just to bring you bang up to date, this is a, a paper that we published recently. Um, it was a, a retrospective database analysis looking at patients who had asthma with nasal polyps, AWMP on the left and on the right patients with asthma without nasal polyps. So these were, you know, more severe asthma patients. And the interesting thing that we found in this top panel here in panel A is that if you have asthma and you have nasal polyps, then you have a much higher expression of um, fractional exhaled nitric oxide. I mean, you can see a big difference there. That's like, you know, 20 parts per billion um, difference. That's not just highly statistically significant. A 20 PP difference is highly clinically relevant. And likewise, you see a uh, statistically significant and a clinically relevant increase in eosinophils in the blood if you've got um, nasal polyps with a difference of, in the order of about 150 cells per microliter. Um, So what are the clinical effects of Dupinolab and how do they relate to type 2 biomarkers? I think that's a very prescient question. And here we have the pivotal uh, Liberty Quest study from Castro in the New England Journal. This is the Sanofi phase 3 study on which Castro Uh, happens to be the first author. And what you can see here is this is looking at the exacerbation risk according to increasing eosinophil counts here and um, also increasing levels of FENO. And this is, these are the odds ratios. So if you want to know the reduction in exacerbation, subtract the odds ratio from one. So for example, an odds ratio of 0.54 equates to a 46% reduction in the annual exacerbation rate. So you can see here that as you increase the blood eosinophil count, you get a progressive uh, reduction in the exacerbation rate. And by the time you're looking at patients with eosinophils more than 300, you have a 67% reduction in exacerbation. So the more eosinophilic patients um, do better on dupimolab. Um, And when you look at FENO, it's a very similar story. Um, And if you look at patients with an FENO more than 50, um, they have a 69% reduction in exacerbations. Now, when you put both of them together, which I couldn't do on this graph because it was too cluttered, the sweet spot actually for the combined biomarkers of eosinophils and phenol is as follows. You get the greatest reduction in exacerbations in patients who have the combination of eosinophils more than 150 and a phenol more than uh, 25. And that's why I say that you really do need to be measuring phenol in all of your patients to properly um, endotype them. So those are the patients who are gonna respond best to uh, blocking IL-413 expression with, uh, with dupilumab.
0: How do you experience the different drugs?
1: All the drugs on um, uh, mepolizumab, dupilumab. Um, omelizumab are all effective in reducing exacerbations.
0: So, which biologics for whom with severe asthma?
1: If your uh, phenol is high, so if you're non atopic and your uh, phenol is, uh, is high, and um, if your uh, blood peripheral, peripheral blood eosinophil count is less than 300, um, then in that case, if you have T2 low asthma and no biologics are going to work. But if you are um, allergic and your pheno is high um, and your peripheral blood eosinophil count is less than 300, then your uh, main options there are going to be um, anti alpha 4 receptor alpha. If you're eosinophilic, um, then um, either of the three drugs uh, will work well. As long as you're allergic, then anti-IG will work. But the main things I want to put, put out here are in the red boxes. Firstly, Um, that you need to be aware that the bloody eosinophil count may be suppressed, not just by maintenance oral steroid, but by high-dose inhaled steroid um, as well. So always remember that, that if the eosinophil count isn't raised, it's not more than 300, it's likely that um, it could be due to the effects of exogenous inhaled or oral steroids, particularly the lipophilic steroids like fluticasone, furoate or propionate. Um, The other thing I want to point out here, which I've asterisk, is that the presence of type 2 comorbidities like atopic dermatitis, nasal polyps, or eosinophilic esophagitis would tend to favor a drug which blocks IL-413 expression, something like uh, dupimolab. So those sorts of patients would sway me to use dupimolab rather than one of the other biologics. But it might be worth you having a look at that in your own time.
0: And what about patients with chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps?
1: So what about which drugs to use in severe chronic rhinosinusitis and nasal polyps? Looking at the relative effects from the main phase 3 pivotal studies.
0: But what about the use of oral corticosteroids for the asthma patients?
1: All of those phase 3 pivotal studies with the biologics um, as their primary endpoint um, had the um, nasal endoscopic nasal polyp score, which was read blindly by an independent observer, and you can see here looking at that primary endpoint, that the percentage change that you get with dupilumab was between thirty and thirty-five uh, percent. With omalizumab, it was eight nine to eighteen percent, and with mepolizumab, it was fifteen percent. And that was also reflected in the percentage change in the snot twenty-two score, which was uh, much higher. With um, dupilumab than the other biologics, um, so you do seem to get a much greater reduction in polyp size and clinical and improvement in clinical outcomes by blocking IL four and IL thirteen than by blocking IgE or interleukin five. Moving on quickly to look at oral corticosteroids, you all know that oral corticosteroids long term are bad for you. Um, They have adverse effects like um, diabetes, hypertension, they can affect your mood. They have cardiovascular effects, effects on bone density, and a predisposition to infections. Not only that, if you're on maintenance oral steroids, this large um, study published by Lee in the European Respiratory Journal showed that if you're not on oral steroids, then perhaps unsurprisingly, uh, you will fare worse in terms of mortality uh, when you compare patients with asthma who aren't on maintenance steroids and those who are. So it's important that we try and get our patients off oral steroids and obviously that we don't put them on maintenance steroids in the first place. So here's the data from um, the Liberty, from the uh, uh, Dupimilab pivotal trial, looking at patients who had uh, Glucocorticoid-dependent maintenance asthma. They were on maintenance oral steroids. Klaus Rabi was the first author in this uh, this paper, and it showed actually that you get quite a marked reduction in maintenance oral steroid with uh, with placebo, about a forty percent reduction. So if you do try hard without anything, you're going to get a decent effect. But you get a much greater reduction um, with dupilumab than with placebo, and the relative difference there is about a fifty percent. Uh, reduction in dose. And you can see also in that study, while reducing the steroid dose, that you do get um, an impressive improvement in fov one amounting to about a 200 mil difference.
0: Great talk, Professor Brian Lipworth. Could you give a quick summary of this complex area? So just to wrap up,
1: biologics um, are without doubt the most effective way um, in terms of benefit risk of reducing exacerbations and oral steroid sparing in type two high ASPIR patients. The workup of severe asthma um, should um, include the relevant T2 biomarkers, eosinophils, pheno, and IgE. Um, always look for oral corticosteroid adverse effects. And if you don't look carefully, you won't find them. And the same applies to Uh, high-dose ICS-related adverse effects. You've got to ask the right questions and do a proper physical um, examination. Um, Think about interleukin-13 escape, which will drive persistent exacerbations in your patients who, despite being treated with anti AL 5 are still exacerbating and also have a high pheno. So think of the cytokine type two cytokine bucket, which I showed you before. So if you're only blocking the L5 hole, and the patient has a high pheno to start with before you start biologic, the likelihood is, is that uh, you might get some reduction in exacerbations, um, but they won't uh, completely reduce their exacerbation burden. So that's something to think about if your patient isn't optimally controlled on anti L5. Is probably because they've got IL-13 escape, which manifests as a persistently raised phenol. IL-5, blocking IL-5 with MEPO or does nothing to pheno. And finally, uh, the prescribing of biologics, I think, should logically take into account type 2-related comorbidities. Um, in other words, consider the whole patient. Don't be blinkered and just think of the asthma alone. You have to think of the the nasal polyps, the atopic dermatitis, and eosinophilic esophagitis. So again, it is very important to do a thorough examination and take a thorough detailed history. So thank you very much for taking time out today to listen to me. And I hope you found that interesting. And I hope that it will stimulate you to do some uh, further reading.
0: Thank you very much for an inspiring talk about the importance of finding the type 2 inflammation among the asthma patients and looking at the whole patient as there can be other comorbidities connected to type 2 inflammation. If you are interested in watching the session, with all the slides and references, you can find the recorded session at the website sanofimed.dk. Here you will also find a panel discussion where more cases are discussed. In the next episode, we will look more into type 2 inflammation and chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps. So stay tuned and thanks for listening. Stay safe.